We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening here in Taipei by Sean Su. Glad to be back. And on the telephone from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing opposition charges that the DPP has total disregard for legislative procedures for bypassing the committee stage for the 2022 budget bill. A wrap-up of the past weekend's referendums, warnings of the issue of Taiwan's ban on the import of Japanese food products from areas affected by the Fukushima nuclear disaster will be unavoidable when the two sides begin official talks on Taiwan's bid to join the CPTPP. The Defence Minister telling lawmakers this week that he has every confidence in the military's counter-espionage capabilities following claims that Beijing has now infiltrated the island's armed forces at most levels and is stealing defence technologies and defence plans. And the saga of Taiwanese-American singer-songwriter Wang Li Hong's divorce. But we'll begin with the story that took up most of the front pages of the island's main newspapers for the longest period this week, that being the dispute in the legislative UN over the central government's 2022 budget. Now, the controversy was sparked by the DPP's decision to bypass a series of committee reviews and instead forward the budget to a second reading in the legislative floor. The DPP caucus used its majority to push through a 55 to 26 vote in favour of immediately moving the 2.239 one trillion NT budget passed the current committee stage. Needless to say, opposition lawmakers were a bit miffed by that, and they described it as being an unprecedented disregard for legislative procedure. KMT lawmaker Fei Hong Tai said such a situation is unprecedented here in Taiwan, as no one has ever before dared to deprive lawmakers of their right to review the government's budget plans. And he went on to accuse President Tsai Ing-wen and DPP Legislative Caucus Whip Ke Jingming of marring democracy by bypassing the committee stage. While new power party lawmaker Chen Jiahua said there was no legitimate reason for the DPP to skip the committee review process as the term of the current legislative session can be extended. But of course the DPP denied any legislative wrongdoing, insisting instead that the party had no choice but to move directly to the penultimate approval stage as the delayed bill is required by the Budget Act to clear the legislature before the end of the calendar year. However, the ruling party on Thursday finally agreed to send the budget plan back to the Legislative Committees for review. Now, the decision to backtrack on that move was made by DPP lawmakers during inter-party negotiations. And party caucuses have also decided that the various committees will now complete their respective reviews of the budget plan by December the 30th, and the bill will clear the legislative floor no later than January the 28th. So, Sean, I mean, what was the DPP thinking here about trying to... This is something they would have accused previous governments of doing, of course. Uh, Yeah, indeed. But unfortunately, I think there's a difference this time, which is that um, the KMT actually seriously delayed uh, uh, the the schedule. They refused to. They refused to send. Uh, they actually broke the entire review schedule. That's one of the big problems, I think. Um, on November 29th, the KMT basically stopped talking. By December 16th to 21, there was no uh, submissions by any of the committees, which is something that you really need because the review to get the final review it takes about one month, and that means that uh, you're going to be in sometime the end of January. Unfortunately, Lunar New Year comes on. February 1st, so you'll have a crisis in hand. So in the past, uh, the key difference is that 
um, you know, the opposition parties didn't completely stop or refuse to submit, uh, 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 you know, things for up for review. The committees didn't refuse to do so. Now, the KMT also controls quite a few committees, uh, so therefore, um, you know, this causes a bigger problem. It's kind of like uh, if I tell everybody, like, all right, um, guys, we need to have uh, all of your receipts and everything, or all of your plans for how you're going to spend for next year. Uh, but I need to, the rules say I need to make this decision before the end of the calendar year. Can all of you guys submit it? And then it's already well, it's New Year's, it's Christmas Eve, and you know none of them have submitted anything yet. Then of course uh, I think the DPP had no choice but to do what it should have, which was I think try to push it through so it had some negotiation leverage. And I actually think that at first I, I myself was a little uh, I was also I also had a bit of a consternation, but by actually doing this they forced the KMT to come to negotiate. And they did. They had a two-hour talk yesterday afternoon, uh, starting at 2 p.m. And before 6 p.m., uh, it was already reported that they've come to agreement to, um, you know, basically submit everything and try to finish before the end of uh, this year. And that's actually really important. They have six more days, right? And that's actually really important because uh, it's going to be very tight. Uh, no budgets have passed in recent memory without a third reading. And it's going to take one month to create that review. It's still still going to be tight, but at least there's some progress being made here. Uh, when it comes to national budgets, I think that's a very important thing to do. So in in a way, I do think the DPP is actually quite deft in this instance. Yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm with Sean on most of these things. Um, I do see uh, some warning signs for the DPP going forward as they pull some of these... Um, uh, I guess you could call it stunts or, or power plays. In a perfect world, when you have two or more responsible political parties, it's, it's obviously healthier for any any country, any society, because your your ideas, even if you're in the majority, are being challenged by a responsible opposition, and that makes you sharper. It makes you uh, be able to argue your points and, and come up with reasons why your plan is better, and it's just better for everyone when there's two healthy, strong uh, political parties. But we don't have that currently in Taiwan. We have one weak opposition, and they, as Sean noted, they're obstructionist. So it's, it's just really tough at, at this point for, for the DPP not to pull moves like this. But if it becomes a, a habit where uh, they just start going, well, you know, we don't really need a, a second opinion, this could be quite dangerous going forward. So I hope the people sitting at the, the top of the DPP recognize the, the dangers in doing this too often. Because, of course, I think Michael was pointing out there, Sean, it could come back and bite you in the butt. I think it might. It very well will. Because um, I think the KMT strategy, of course, involved not including context. So when most people first read about this news, they'll paint the DPP as necessarily the villain here. Because of so many, because of the referendum on all these things going on, a uh, few people actually paid attention to the fact that the KMT was indeed being obstructionist, as Michael said. So as a result, uh, you know, in a lot of people's memories, there maybe the idea that, okay, the DPP did this, therefore justifying future KMT actions. This is politics, I think, at one of its worst, uh, because there's no space for nuance, there's not enough bandwidth for full understanding. And I really do hope this is not the future path for Taiwan, 
but uh, I think it is up to the DPP to work their hardest to try to explain the situation to the masses. Moving on now, and Taiwanese voters this past weekend rejected the four referendum questions that we've been talking about on and off in episodes of this show for the past, well, several months now. They were the first national referendums to have not been held on the same day as central or local government elections. And according to the Central Election Commission, the number of people who supported each of the four referendum initiatives were outnumbered by those who opposed them by a narrow margin, ranging from 2.08 to 5.68 percentage points. The votes cast in opposition to each of the questions Questions were basically 4,163,464 regarding the conservation of the algal reefs, 4,120,038 on the referendums, 4,131,203 on the pork import issue, and 4,262,451 on the fourth nuclear power plant. Now, voter turnout stood at 41.09%, including the invalid votes. Premier Su Jung Chung was quick to cite the failure of the four referendums to pass as being testament to the public support for the government's policies on pork imports and energy transition. While KMT chairman Eric Ju apologised to his party for the failure of the ballots to pass, but he went on to say that he believes that the similarity in the final tallies across the board made the results less reminiscent of issues-based referendums and more akin to what he called caged plebiscites that had harmed the country's democracy. Ju also called on party members not to blame any one person for the failure, but that, of course, didn't stop some from the party from beating up verbally on new Taipei Mayor Ho Yoi, accusing him of failing to express a clear opinion on the referendums. Meanwhile, the Taiwan People's Party accused the government of spreading misinformation as being the reason the referendums failed to pass, and the new power party, which had backed three of the initiatives, actually simply said that it respected the results of the national vote. Now, the results of the referendums in the North and South were clearly divided across party political lines, and most voters in the North sided with the KMT and voted yes to all four questions, while a majority of voters in the South backed the DPP and cast no votes. Figures, basically where most of the yes votes were cast, showed people voting yes more than anywhere else in Taipei, Jilung and Taoyuan, while most of the no votes were cast in Tainan, Kaohsiung and Pingdong. So, Michael, in Kaohsiung there, most people in Kaohsiung in the South voted no, most people in the North voted yes. I tell you, that, that comes as no surprise to you there. No, and uh, Tainan was really the star that uh, outshone uh, that city outshone uh, ever, everywhere else in the south. But even in Pingdong, which has a a, a good uh, chunk of pork farmers, the, they came out and uh, also didn't support the uh, the pork measure, which makes sense because um, if you've got a choice of, of Taiwan pork, and all the restaurants these days have signs out there saying you know we only serve Taiwan pork, it's actually uh, a better thing for local farmers to to ban. Uh, uh, to, to, to not ban, rather, uh, U.S. pork, because uh, it, it gives you a choice of, of choosing Taiwan. And so, uh, yeah, we, we had... Uh, uh, when, when the results first came out in the South, I was like, oh, you know, we, we won by a good margin. But then as they, the final tallies came in, it was clear that it was actually a lot closer than anticipated. So what that signals to me is that the KMT did a better job than anticipated in bringing out their people and rallying their supporters and the DPP was a little bit uh, lackluster, at least the voters were, for, for coming out. But it also indicates that the KMT just doesn't have as many supporters in general uh, all over the island as the DPP does, and this is pretty clear. The DPP, I don't think anybody would uh, uh, disagree with me, is better at campaigning politically than the Blue Party is. They're just 
better at the whole game of uh, politicking, if you want to put it that way. And uh, Susan Tsang, man, that guy really earned his uh, his retirement uh, over this past uh, campaign. He did close to 70 different rallies, and he did many of them in the South, where he had PowerPoint presentations behind him that explained exactly why we needed to uh, reject these ones and how the, the pork thing would influence uh, trade and et cetera. And he did it in a way that even uh, an uneducated person or a person who doesn't speak Chinese all that well, like myself, was able to understand and say, huh, that makes a, a good point. On the other side, I wasn't able to find, and, and I, maybe I just wasn't able to find, but I couldn't hear any real specifics from the blue camp, uh, such as for the atomic power plant. I wanted to know, if we said yes to that, how long would it take for it to be fired up? How much would it cost for it to uh, get back in place? What, what were the specifics? Would we retire another plant in favor of this one? But I didn't hear any of that. What I heard from the blue side is... The DVP is lying to you. They've got an Internet army out there that is telling young people what to think, and they're brainwashing, and they're bad, bad, bad. bad. And that, that was it. And uh, that was quite disappointing to, to only hear that. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I think the, the, the main uh, thing that the, that the, uh, uh, the takeaway for me was something from uh, Zhao Xiaokang, the, the, the rather firebrand uh, blue uh, political commentator, he said that, uh, you know, forget about all these points that we're talking about with the referendums. He said these referendums are essentially just one referendum on the administration of Tsai Ing-wen. So if he is correct, that means that she won, and pretty decidedly. So I feel like the majority of voters in the South especially, but in Taiwan in general, basically decided, okay, well, even if we don't understand all of these issues all that well, we trust that the DPP has done a pretty good job through this pandemic of getting us through this with uh, financial issues, and Taiwan's doing pretty well. We think you're doing a pretty good job, so we're going to go ahead and support what you say because you've kept us uh, at, at where we are right now. Oh, yeah, uh, I agree with every single word that Michael has said. Indeed, the KMT had the opportunity. They had the opportunity to definitely eloquently make their case. Did they? They did not. In fact, they did a lot of projection by claiming internet armies and stuff like that, when in fact, I saw a lot of misinformation coming from their camp. And yes, indeed, the DPP actually came out and talked about nuance. Uh, one guy, uh, Vincent Chow, also known as Interpreter Brother, had actually advocated uh, a lot of nuance. In fact, um, uh, to the consternation of quite a few people, uh, they were actually wondering why was Vincent Chow, for example, when he was doing his presentations, he himself was doing presentations as well, and he used PowerPoints, figures, and things like that as well. Um, not everyone made it very easy to understand but what was definitely presented, at least on the Pan Green side, was that these issues were far more complicated than it seemed. And indeed, I think the populace was pretty, uh, uh, you know, they, they were, you know, two months ago from this period, I think a lot of people, it would the votes would have went the other way. Agreed. But I do think the DPP did a fantastic job in actually explaining that, you know, okay, for example, Nuclear 4, uh, Plant 4 is not that easy to turn on online, and there's all these issues with it, blah, blah, blah. And then not only that, also the pork issue, for instance, um, they didn't even play all of their cards, I've noticed. The DPP actually had some in reserve. For instance, there's the fact that the United States has not been 
exporting rectal pork for a very long time. Uh, and that's because they wanted access to the China market, which was decimated due to uh, swine flu within China. And, you know, these things didn't have to, they didn't even strike out that hard, in my opinion. If the DPP really wanted to, they could have done even harder. But I, from my ask of the, some of their officials on why didn't they strike harder on these issues, they just didn't think it was necessary. They thought that there might be some space for this. And this is why the referendum was separated from the political, uh, the, the presidential or, or national elections, because there would be more time for people, uh, or ideally there would be more time for people to get better informed on the issues. That said, uh, as Nathan Batto of Frozen Garlic has pointed out, the timing of it is going to be complicated from here on out because, uh, you know, referendums are not always placed, even though they're an odd number of years, uh, they're not always placed too far or too close between the national elections or local elections, leading to some awkward periods uh, where there's only, let's say, a couple months before a presidential election in the future or too many months uh, afterwards. So uh, that is going to be a big problem in the future regarding, uh, one, regarding this. And as far as how you'll eat, the, the new type mayor goes, wow, uh, what a, uh, just a, a brilliant strategic move. And if he isn't running for president in 2024, I, I will be surprised. The polls have him, uh, his popularity higher, significantly higher than William Lai, vice president. And he could very possibly win for the KMT if they would nominate him. But uh, they're known for shooting themselves in the foot and, uh, uh, as it is right now, they might uh, go ahead and uh, nominate Eric Jew again for uh, another devastating loss. But uh, the fact that he was willing to, to uh, make that break and say, you know, vote your conscience, and uh, just in general, his willingness to not be seen as partisan is uh, refreshing to a lot of people. I know there's some people who have their skepticism about him and they don't like him personally or whatever, but uh, he is, in my view, the only possible way forward for the KMT to remain a viable uh, alternative in Taiwan. If they continue the way they are going right now, they're going to be relegated to new party status, and then beyond that, just to perhaps uh, a couple of nominal uh, people in the legislature within, you know, say, 20 years. Yeah, indeed. Donovan Smith actually said, uh, reported uh, in his podcast that there were KMT that actually came out and tried to say that they were concerned that Ho Yo Yi might not be loyal enough. He might be the next Li Deng Hui. Right, might be <laughs> And this made me kind of laugh because, you know, they are failing to realize something really important, which is that, indeed, Ho Yo Yi is the KMT's best chance for the future. But by claiming that he might be, quote unquote, looking for, not looking enough out for mainlander interests, but uh, might be caring too much about local Taiwanese interests, I think just paints him in an even worse picture. The call for Ho Yo Yi to be uh, deposed, removed, or whatever, is just, I really feel that, I said many months ago, on this show that the KMT is still learning how to be an opposition party. And boy, are they showing that.
Yeah, and uh, you mentioned uh, Lee Dong-hui. Uh, this referendum and uh, the past presidential win and what will probably be decent wins in 2022 and 2024 if uh, trends continue this way have really cemented President Tsai as the next uh, Lee Dong-hui in the sense of she's going to be a, uh, a, a mother figure and very, very powerful in Taiwanese politics well after she leaves office. Um, she just has been quite masterful through all of this and keeping her party together, keeping the factions from too much infighting. You know, many people have predicted uh, splits and, and arguments and this, but uh, she has held it together and uh, it's been impressive. And moving on, by staying in referendum sort of, sort of related news, Economics Minister Wang Meihua on Thursday of this week told lawmakers that the ban on the import of Japanese food products from areas affected by the Fukushima nuclear disaster will be unavoidable when the two sides begin official talks on Taiwan's bid to join a Tokyo-led trade bloc. And according to Wang, the issue will be raised as Japan plays a leading role in the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. Her statement came after Taiwan's top Trade negotiator John Dung told reporters earlier this week that there is currently no timetable for talks with Japan on lifting the ban, but Dung also stressed that Taiwan's import controls on Japanese food will likely come up in the talks, especially following the defeat of the referendum proposal to ban imports of pork products containing ractopamine. So, Sean, this is obviously a pending fight for the DPP. They did did well in the referendum on the pork, but Fukushima food, different issue. Well, like we just said a few moments ago, uh, it's up to the DPP to really come out and explain its position. One thing why I'm not really concerned so much about quote-unquote radioactive food is I know a lot of people think of radiation and they think, okay, uh, Simpsons, or they might think uh, <laughs> Chernobyl, uh, you know, or, or the, the highly praised uh, miniseries on that one, uh, or, or all sorts of horror films. But the reality is radiation detection equipment is relatively cheap and very, very sensitive. And so, therefore, all the food that comes from the Fukushima, uh, the Fukushima or the Sendai area of Japan, if there is too much radiation, it'll be very easily detected. And because a lot of our food is shipped from air as well, Actually, there's a lot of radiation. Every time you take a flight, you take a dose of radiation as well. And it's actually measurable by even cheap devices that go for as little as $100, $150. So it will be trivial to block anything that comes to be too, quote-unquote, radioactive. Not even to mention, just on a bigger picture scale, like just, just to zoom out a little, our coal plants produce actually quite a lot of radiation. <laughs> it's, it seems counterintuitive, but it does. And that actually is way more harmful. And, you know, look at Taizong with one of the world's largest uh, coal plants. That's harmful, right? Uh, there's a lot of things that can harm you far more than, uh, uh, you know, easily detected food that might be too radioactive. And if it is... Well, first of all, there's Japan's side where they won't export it, and then we can come to an agreement with that. And on Taiwan's side, again, cheap equipment can detect that really easily. Furthermore, there's one more thing that needs to be said. Japan basically controls the CPTPP. If Taiwan wants to join the CPTPP, there's going to have to be compromises made. So if Taiwan ups its uh, ability to scan and check food and whatnot, 
Or if you just simply carry a little, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, radiation detector, you can buy one yourself. You yourself can verify if your food is radioactive. And of course, Michael, the premier this week said that basically the government has no plans to jump on the bandwagon here and simply import these Japanese products. And he also stressed that food safety remains the government's number one priority, and it will also continue to respect scientific evidence and international standards in regards to the import of all food products. Yeah, right.、Um, I'm with Sean on the science aspect of it, and、uh, he's correct in, in all, all of those assessments.、Um, However, I'm not sure if I have enough、uh, trust in people's、uh, rationality to be able to、uh, think of this in this way. You know, there's just so much、uh, media stuff. Godzilla, as you noted, The Simpsons, all of this three-eyed fish, and all. It, it really, this whole nuke thing is, is is a big deal for a lot of people. But、um, I think the government can head this off with、uh, labeling, which they've done with the the Taiwan pork. So you know, you can. Slap a huge label on a vegetable that says, you know, from Fukushima. If that's what they really need to do, but the harder one that I've、uh, been talking to people down here、uh, about is、uh, ocean stuff. They have a really hard time accepting that they would be able to、uh, import fish that was caught around that area because we, as we know, they've been dumping、uh, very contaminated water into the ocean for a very long time now. But again, if you look at this from just you know rational science, ocean currents move around. That water has been moved everywhere at this point, and it's been diluted and everything. So, it it it's. It, It's very. It's going to be an emotional thing, and the DVP again, as Sean noted, is going to have to go to the board with education. They're going to have to pull out the powerpoints. They're going to have to show why this is okay, and、uh, the the KMT is going to try the emotional card. They're just going to be, you know, stop poisoning our children, and that's a very powerful card for the most part. And generally, it works, but it didn't work with the last referendums. So if the DPP uses the PowerPoint uh, uh, plan once again, and you know goes with labeling or uh, detection, uh, it might 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 pass. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week. And Defence Minister Cho Guocheng this week told lawmakers that he has every confidence in the military's counter-espionage capabilities, as comprehensive protective measures are in place to guard against Chinese spying. The statement came after Reuters claimed that Chinese spies have infiltrated the island's armed forces at all levels and are now stealing defence technologies and defence plans. But according to the Defence Minister, the military's counter-intelligence efforts include education campaigns to encourage. And reward military personnel to report initial contact with alleged espionage attempts, and he went on to say that after receiving such reports, the Ministry of National Defence launches investigations into the allegations, and such measures have reportedly proven successful over the years. However. Um, while there's been lots of cases, in fact, there's been 137 people basically convicted of spying for China between 
2015 in August of last year um, there's been some questions about the actual sentences that spies have been getting as DPP lawmaker Lord Jung announced this week that he's proposing a bill to amend four national security laws to better handle cases that do involve Chinese espionage now according to law the amendments include provisions to establish a dedicated legal system and judges to deal specifically with espionage and other national security cases law says he was forced to do this because what I said figures show between 2015 and August of 2020 137 people out of a total of 141 charged with spying were found guilty of violating national security laws and of them only 19 received prison sentences of longer than six months. So Sean got Reuters sort of scaremongering about Chinese spies the defence minister saying no we can deal with it and then we've got the DPP lawmaker saying maybe we should deal with this a bit tougher. I don't have access to classified information. I can't tell you if indeed these officers have divulged too much information or if the ministry, defense ministry can catch all the spies. Spies are generally hard to catch from what I've read about history. It's much easier if we were a totalitarian surveillance state like China where cell phones, communications and everything like that is monitored. We're not that kind of nation, so we have to live with that fact. And it gets even harder because a lot of these spy schemes involve having giving trips to military officers, giving them all sorts of gifts, and then flying them to third-party nations, uh, and then doing the information trade there, which makes it even harder for Taiwan to crack down on these kind of things. And let's not pretend that it is small. Um, the spy network, this recent big spy network was deployed during Mind Zhou's reign. We also know that during the Mai administration, the Chinese government persuaded many nation states to switch sides unofficially, waiting until Taiwan was elected. This means that essentially that China, I feel, is in a cold war with Taiwan all this time. You know, we should not pretend that it isn't. Uh, this isn't even, you know, prior to 2015, there's been plenty of cases where China has tried to tempt uh, U.S. officials, I mean, Taiwan officials, sorry about that. And it's gotten really bad because all three branches of the military has been affected. We're talking about two generals, two major generals, two colonels, and a whole slew of lieutenants. So these people will have a great deal of knowledge on what's going on in Taiwan's military. And that is critical for what China needs. But even worse is that, okay, even if we're at a numerical disadvantage and a military disadvantage, geographically, Taiwan is still an extremely hard nut to crack. However, Morale is going to be a big issue. Morale, because if soldiers and everyone feels they can't trust their fellow soldier in the defense of Taiwan, that suspicion and stuff can tear apart the military from within. I mean, we're gone to a point where the military now creates dramas where they force soldiers to watch, which depicts scenes of... Um, spies or how spying works or how they pump information out of uh, uh, soldiers and what have you. We've gone to the point where we're offering huge cash rewards just to report on each other, uh, you know, if we suspect the other person is a spy. This, this, there's more to this story that will go on past the show, but um, Taiwan is going to have to come up with some very creative means in order to defend itself from here on. 
Yeah, uh, you said in the in the start that uh, has now uh, discovered this is not new in any way whatsoever. China has had spies in every part of Taiwan's military since um, before they even came to Taiwan. Uh, the most famous case I can think of is uh, back. Uh, there was one Taiwanese individual who was walking, uh, did the, the long march with Mao, uh, and then came back to Taiwan and uh, almost uh, successfully got Taiwan to. to many generals to switch sides so uh, it, it isn't new and um, as far as the sentencing goes in 2019 the the, the parliament the leeway did actually change uh, the security law to uh, imprisonment of a minimum of seven years and fines of a hundred million NT um, however Serious crimes, when they're committed out of uniform, can only be tried under the national security law, which you know doles out much shorter jail terms. Under military law, if you were caught in uniform doing that, then you can be sentenced to death or life imprisonment. So there's that. Um, the uh, fine, not fine, rather the uh, the reward for turning in spies is about five million NT. They were noting uh, they're passing out packs of tissue paper, uh, you know, little little tissue um, boxes to uh, soldiers, telling them if they see uh, people, you know, uh, perhaps being recruited or they help expose a spy, they'll get five million NT as a reward. So uh, the, there, there's some progress in that. Um, an, uh, an issue that uh, I think is being not talked about as much, but maybe resolving itself sort of just uh, organically, is the large amount of people serving as officers or generals who have, to be frank, questionable loyalty. And I'm talking here not to generalize entirely, but I'm talking mostly about uh, mainlanders or, or you know, the, the descendants of mainlanders who... Down here in Kaohsiung, we have a huge military base, right, the Zhuang military base, and I have many, many friends uh, I talk to. Uh, some of these people are very diehard ROC um, supporters, and they've told me things like, uh, in the event of a war, it would really depend on whether or not I felt that uh, Taiwan had done anything that deserved uh, uh, to be invaded and things like this, and it's quite spooky to realize that you have a decent component of higher cadre uh, officers who would not necessarily take orders from President Tsai because they find her uh, offensive in some way. Now, the good thing that's happening, perhaps if you want to put it that way, is that they are retiring as they're getting older, and uh, a new generation is coming in. But uh, it, it, it has, it's a subject that really hasn't been addressed, in my view. And of course, another system, another topic, rather, Sean, that hasn't been addressed is the fact that there's been reports that when they catch these alleged spies who have received alleged money from China, some of this money they can't confiscate. So these, these alleged spies continue to have the money that China's given them. Yeah, it's quite complicated because the way they're given, given gifts and uh, the way they are given uh, uh, these incentives is on an international level because they meet with a lot of these retired, even if they're recently retired generals, the information they have is rather critical. Yeah. So they go abroad overseas. It's very hard to track exactly which and how they're getting all this money. So if they're only getting a six-month sentence because they're out of uniform, it might be worth it. It 
might just be really worth it. I mean, if if your son or your child, grandchild is getting a million dollars or some job or some sort of benefit, and you're a retiring old man, then yeah, you might just take that six-month hit. Why not? Right? What difference does it make? Uh, the, the slap on the wrist is definitely a major issue. Um, six months is, you know, is not enough. So yeah, yeah, they're already talking about increasing the 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 punishment. It has to be way more. We're not not even seven years. This thing has to be, uh, uh, you know, extremely tough. And as Michael mentioned, one of yeah, these generals may be retiring that might have uh, what I will call ethno nationalist loyalties. Yeah, where they believe that you know Taiwan is a part of China. So if you know Taiwan does something, let's say, uh, let's make an example. Okay, so let's say uh, there's a referendum, a very contentious one, and it manages to pass up for a vote. Which is, uh, you know, is Taiwan a nation and blah blah blah, and most of the populace votes for that. There might be some generals that will refuse to defend Taiwan or defect to the Chinese side. The military has said, uh, or some officials or people have said that uh, the younger generation are less likely to fall for this. But because of the older generation, many of them, not necessarily because they're mainlanders, but definitely because they're ethno nationalists. Might go this route, and that's a very sobering thought right now. I think uh, Sean nailed it. Uh, yeah, the fact that they are able to now, COVID, of course, has put a, a bit of a break on this. But again, if you look back in history, like even when the the, the U.S. was recruiting spies in Taiwan for uh, making sure that Taiwan didn't develop a, a nuclear uh, a weapons program, that was all taking place out of the country you know they would invite the the officer to a, a trip to disney world for example and then you know on the it's a small world after all ride they would uh, <laughs> sit next to him and, and and whisper information back and forth and it's really hard to to track down so uh we 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 need to be more assured of, of loyalty and uh, i think that uh, as sean noted the Perhaps the biggest thing that will make a difference is when the majority of people who are in positions of high power are people who were born in Taiwan and, uh, you know, second, third, whatever generation, and their loyalty is to Taiwan. And uh, that, that's simple. And before we go this week, the saga of Taiwanese-American singer-songwriter Wong Lee Hong's divorce was plastered all over the island's media this week. Wong confirmed reports that he and his wife of eight years have filed for divorce last week, saying the couple decided to separate as they have different ideas and plans for their future. He then went on to say that he had no plans to make any further comment on the matter. That, however, proved rather short-lived as his wife, Lee Jing Lei, as well as Wong's father, abruptly got into a rather messy public dispute. And his wife, Wong's wife, took to the internet to accuse her husband of emotional abuse, of repeated infidelity with prostitutes and of pursuing her when she was only 16 years old. And Taiwan then woke up on Monday morning to discover that Lee had claimed that Wong had been diagnosed as a sex addict with a narcissistic personality. Wong's father then waded in on the controversy, releasing a statement alleging that his son had suffered seven years of pain after Lee threatened to ruin the singer's career unless he agreed to get married to her. 
her. Now, the singer-songwriter then took to social media himself to say, basically, I'm taking the blame for all these problems and I'm also bowing out of the entertainment industry for a while while I, and I paraphrase, get my act together. Now, reports from local media here in Taiwan are saying the total value of the alimony and assets that Wang Lihong's wife is set to receive following their divorce stands at about 1.14 billion NT, a figure that reportedly equals one-third of Wong's total wealth. Now, while a tabloid piece in itself the story, there were some interesting things here, Sean, because, of course, the... The allegation, Wong, of course, was living in Beijing before the the poop hit the fan, so to speak, when he flew back to Taiwan. But, of course, allegations of prostitution using made by someone who's in China and a celebrity have, of course, not gone too well for other celebrities in China recently because they've been investigated for these supposed acts. Oh, yeah. Uh, So I heard that supposedly he was not informed about this situation or likely suggests that he wasn't informed because uh, his wife made it public, uh, you know, while he was on the flight. So there was some calculation on all sides, actually, I think, to to harm each other. There was also this... uh, No, Wang Wang Lihom is... His English is basically perfect because he largely grew up uh, in the West. So uh, I did see some text messages supposedly from him offering homes in very poor broken English, probably not from him. There's a lot of speculation. All sorts of other pop stars have been accused of having relationships with him. He was accused of all this thing. And he's in a very tough position because if he strikes back hard, he looks bad. If he doesn't strike back and he goes quiet, you know, the rumors continue to swirl. It's kind of a lose-lose situation from him. Now, I'm not asking for sympathy for Wang here. I am basically pointing out that for pop stars like this, uh, Wang, who is notorious for, uh, well, one of the notorious Taiwan pop stars that have been um, very, very favorable towards China, how precarious their situations are. In China, if you're accused of prostitution, now, keep in mind, as I said earlier, China is a totalitarian surveillance state. They probably know if you're a pop star, if you, they can probably bring out evidence if you went to seek a prostitute. Wang's situation is going to be tough, just like all other pop stars. They, they, you know, China, being upset, can knock you out. It doesn't matter how loyal or how fawning you are of, of uh, the PRC. All this can happen. And notably, Wang, when he talked about how much he could loss, lose in this, used uh, renminbi, uh, the Chinese currency, to discuss this stuff. He didn't US, US dollars or any other currency that he could have mentioned, uh, or Taiwan dollars, for that matter. And anyway, now he's stuck in Taiwan, in quarantine, uh, he was supposed to uh, perform for the New Year's Bash here in Taipei. And, uh, well, <laughs> all I can say is, uh, you know, when super wealthy billionaires like uh, ARK Invest's CEO, Kathy Wood, have divested from China, I think all future Taiwanese pop stars must understand that if a drop of a hat, even, you know, a regular, what seems like a regular, I mean, in the U.S., this wouldn't be in the news. To be, it wouldn't be much in the news, right? They would say Asian pop stars, you know, uh, pop stars divorcing and stuff is quite normal. It would be pretty boring in the West, but it's been become such big news here in Taiwan. It's become such big news in China, which shows that 
you know, it's not a stable situation. Yeah, um, I'm not all that interested in the back and forth between him and his ex-wife. Some of the the details, her being 16, are pretty creepy if true, and... uh, uh, him, perhaps, uh, you know, if if this follows the the way that it should go, he'll if he's guilty, of course, uh, he'll uh, declare that he has a sex addiction and uh, some other problem, and he'll seek therapy, and then two or three years down the road, he'll be rehabilitated and he'll be on talk shows and judging music uh, events, and you know that that's how this thing goes. But the thing that I was interested in was that the Taiwan media seem to pick up a little bit more than they have in the past on um, code switching, which if uh, people aren't familiar with is, uh, you know, the term for how you present yourself uh, when you're talking to one group of people versus how you talk to another. And this is commonly uh, spoken of in the African-American community in, in America. But for these purposes, we're talking about how when he's on television in China, he adopts an extremely Beijing accent, you know, and he'll go full mainlander. And that is not his his Chinese. Uh, as Sean pointed out, he grew up in the West, and uh, he speaks with, uh, if anything, a sort of uh, mild ABC accent. And then when he comes back to Taiwan, he switches back into his uh, his ordinary Chinese. And, you know, that you might just be like, oh, well, you know, that's what you do when you're in a different place. You want people to understand. But it isn't that, actually. What it is is uh, a way of signaling to Chinese people that I am okay with China. And this uh, is, is reinforced by videos of him standing on a balcony watching a soccer game with Jackie Chan singing, uh, belting out, you know, uh, national. Chinese songs, uh, how much he loves China, changing the lyrics of various songs that he sings. So in Taiwan, he'll sing something like, there is a river in China, and the uh, the river is named blah, 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 and in China, he'll be like, there is a power in China, the power is red, or something. I don't know. I don't know the specifics, but there's there's uh, this sort of code switching is being noticed by both sides, and I think it's for the better, because... China, uh, a while back, pointed out that if you're going to come to China and you're going to make billions of uh, renminbi or, or NT or U.S. dollars or whatever, then you need to get on board. You can't, uh, you know, you can't be uh, of two masters. And, you know, <laughs> although I, I don't agree with China, fair enough. If you're going to make money off of them, uh, they have a fair point. And in Taiwan... Uh, same thing. If if you're going to go over there and make tons of money and then come back here and downplay your relationship to Taiwan and, and uh, all of this, it, it, it's time that many of these celebrities pick a side in, in, and be okay with not making the billions of dollars if it means that they, they have to grow a conscience. And uh, I know that's tough to, uh, to, to swallow for, for many celebrities, but, yeah, um, it's becoming increasingly unacceptable for people on either side of the strait, uh, this, this glaring hypocrisy that a lot of them display. And that's where we have to leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined today in the studio by Sean Su. It's great to be back. And on the telephone from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Thanks for having me. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.